What kind of year has it been? Oh, there is so much to say. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. One more time in 2020, I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and here with me, as always, to help us all understand what this week in the news has been, is ace political reporter at the Houston Chronicle and HoustonChronicle.com, Jeremy Wallace. Hello, Jeremy. Hello. We're finally at the end of this dumpster of a year, right? <laughs> is it, <laughs> We're is almost it bi- there. Is it bittersweet? Oh, there you go. Actually, it's not. No, you're just ready for this to be over. Yeah. Right? This, it's, just, this is it's, just, yeah. it's a heaping pile of crap, and it's time <laughs> to move move on to the next year, right? What a dumpster fire. If, if there was ever just a logo, the perfect yep. meme for 2020, it's just a dumpster on fire floating down a river. That is yep. what that's what this has been like. Um, let's begin here with the very latest on COVID-19, which continues to dominate everything, which, you know, back in January or, you know, in December of last year and then into January of this year and even February into March, wouldn't have thought this is the only thing we would ever start the show with all the time. It wasn't anything that was on anybody's radar really back then. Yep. Now it just dominates everything. Here's the headline, latest thing at quorumreport.com. Governor Abbott says more than 1 million COVID-19 vaccines in Texas uh, will be going out there to people by the end of the month. Uh, that's what they expect the stockpile to look like. And, you know, Jeremy, they have said that those uh, healthcare workers and those who work in the long-term nursing facilities and all that, they get, they get it first, right? They're yep. first in line. But there are still some questions about exactly who goes after that. They haven't completely sorted all of that out. Um, and we'll see, you know, where they go with this. And, and have you done the uh, little test uh, on the New York Times website about, uh, you know, wh- where are you in line in oh, your yeah. county? Did yeah, you, I'm, I think I'm, I'm 975,000th in Travis County or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, fairly young, fairly healthy. I'm not going to get it soon. Uh, but what would you think, Jeremy? Who who would the other people be that would naturally sort of be toward the top? It's, you know, the elderly, the uh, folks who are, you know, vulnerable, have different uh, underlying yep. conditions and things like that. Yeah, exactly. I think I think the nursing home populations are going to be the key to try to figure out because that's where a lot of the deaths have occurred. You know, it's like the, you know Texas. We're, we're approaching about twenty five thousand people who have died this year, which is just shocking. You know, last week we were talking about how we were about to hit twenty four thousand, and here we are. We're going to have twenty five thousand probably by the end of this weekend coming up. Uh, and so, but you know, those nursing homes are kind of a key area. You know, so and you see that being the priority area. That's where you know things have really got out of hand, just for, oh, for the workers who mm-hmm. work in those you know, facilities and for the residents who work in those facilities, because the spread has just been just deadly in those places. So I would suspect that would be next up on the priority list. Uh, that's what we've been hearing, at least from a lot of other states. Yep. So I'm assuming that's what happens here. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick had a few things to say about this, and because his office has said the way we should find out what he thinks about things is to turn on Fox News Channel, that's what we'll do right now. <music> Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick on Fox News at night with Shannon Bream. He was asked, what is the plan? So we have been really putting our plan in place for about five months Uh, And we have over 7,000 facilitators, those who are going to uh, give the vaccination, uh, working with partners across the state. So as we get these doses, we expect about 1.4 million uh, before this month ends, uh, several million more in the month of January. And remember, because it's two doses, if you have a total of 4 million, that means you can can, uh, take care of uh, 2 million patients. We're going to start with tier one. That's our hospitals. uh, That's our nursing homes. That's the nursing home residents, uh, our essential workers on the front lines, our first responders, our police, our fire, our EMTs. Uh, I want to get it out to the teachers as quickly as we can as well. Mm -hmm. So we are ready to go in Texas. Shannon Bream on Fox News, Jeremy, had uh, tried to frame it up as a moment that all Americans should be celebrating something to be happy about, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, moderate, liberal, conservative, whatever. It's a good thing that we're making some progress on this, you know, toward uh, you know building some immunity uh, so that we can get past this pandemic. But it would not be a Dan Patrick interview unless it was also injected with some politics. It also needs to include allocation of credit for President Trump. 
It's just a miracle. It is a true miracle mm-hmm. that would have it never is. happened without great scientists around the world, but without the leadership of the president. The president pushed uh, through his business sense of bringing people together, ordering the doses in advance, 150 million, and saying, get the job done. The president gets the bottom line credit for this. So Trump gets almost all of the credit. Uh, you know, those people who worked around the clock, the scientists and uh, researchers, big pharma who are working on this, so they get some credit. But most of it goes to President Trump, who said, just get it done. This is why I love Dan Patrick, Jeremy. There are some people who think that I don't like Dan Patrick. I love Dan Patrick. Here's why. He always says the quiet part out loud. All right? Yeah. <laughs> what, what would happen if the vaccine had come just a little bit sooner. And had this been announced uh, six weeks ago, he'd be president for another four years, I believe. <laughs> there you go. If if the president got the credit for this before the election, Dan Patrick says that Trump would have been reelected. Maybe there is something to that. Uh, you know, all this credit for the for the president, you know, hitting the gas on trying to get a vaccine. There is something to that. I mean, we have heard some comparisons to uh, the moonshot where, you know, Kennedy says, we're going to the moon. Now, is he the guy who knows how to get there? No, right? He, he had no clue, but we're going to go to the moon. We do these things not because they're easy, but because they are hard, right? But here's what I don't remember about Kennedy. I don't remember Kennedy saying things like, you know, I don't know about the science of this going to the moon. I don't know that the way that the rockets work will actually get us to the moon. I'm not sure that, you know, NASA even has any clue what they're doing. Um, it, 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 my point being, that's the kind of thing Trump has been saying about the scientific and healthcare community throughout the entire pandemic, right? Casting doubt on the protocols for keeping people safe, uh, making it a political issue, whether you wear a mask or not. So yeah, you can get some credit for being the guy who said, get that vaccine done. But at the same time, it was the president who has caused so much confusion over the last nine months, Jeremy, about what the rest of us need to do in the meantime, before the vaccine arrives. Yeah, to me, it's kind of almost like that conversation when we try to give credit or not credit, you know, for the economy, you know, for a president, right? You know, in this case, like, does Trump deserve some credit for being there when the vaccine was developed? Absolutely, sure. But he also deserves credit, you know, in the negative sense, you know, for there's 25,000 people who are dead in Texas. uh, And there's going to be 10,000 people who are in the hospital, you know, this Christmas break you know, with COVID-19 just in Texas. So, like, yeah, he's also more responsible for that as well, Mm -hmm. you know. So if he's going to take credit for the vaccine, he also has to take credit for, you know, the part where we've lost so many Texans and there's so many, you know, families who are going to have a loved one in the hospital. Uh, 10,000 people are going to be in the hospital during this Christmas break with lab-confirmed COVID-19 just in Texas hospitals. Yeah, and we know... Right. We know based on polling and we know based on what we see at President Trump's rallies, for example, uh, that the people who support him are the ones who say no mask, no restrictions, none of that, uh, which is what has led to a greater spread of the disease. I think one of the things that's been really difficult for a lot of people to get their minds around as we've dealt with this pandemic is that if you're a young, relatively healthy person like you and I are, Jeremy, or someone who's younger and healthier like our producer, Sarah, um, if you're wearing a mask, It's not just to make sure that you don't get sick, right? Exactly. You are part of a greater collective effort to try to slow the spread of a disease across a continent, right? It's hard for people to, when we're, you know, pounded all the time with the idea of rugged individualism, liberty and freedom and everything, which are all good things. And I support every one of them. uh, But when that's what is in your DNA sort of uh, culturally and politically, it's hard to process the idea that we're all going to move like ants in an anthill and do the same thing, right, to all accomplish one thing, right? We we don't generally do that in America. So when the president, you know, just poured cold water on that at every step of the way, it made it that much, much more difficult. And I don't think that saying that means that you're necessarily assigning specific blame for specific deaths to the president. That's not fair. But he created an environment in which it was very difficult for the healthcare profession to save the lives of people who were be sent, you know, being sent to the hospital. Yeah, well, and you can see how, like, you know, those early signals, you know, it's like the result of that was, you know, back in July when we had, you know, such a wild spread, 
you know, of, of COVID-19, you know, particularly in Texas, but outside of Texas as well. But, you know, that's when we first hit 10,000 cases and we had to, you know, reshut bars. And that's when people started to finally start wearing a mask. But, you, you know, imagine, like, you know, back in May, if you kind of remember, it was still very sporadic, you know, where you would see masks. You know, on, on my trips out west, uh, you know, I certainly would see hardly any mask wearing at gas stations and, you know, in convenience stores and things like that. And so, you know, I think those early signals from the president really kind of set a tone of, you know, we were locked down, but eh, do you really need to? You know, it's like, you know, do you really need to wear a mask? Yeah, sure, Fauci's saying wear a mask, but eh, do, I'm not going to wear one. You know, that kind of mixed messaging <laughs> yeah. yeah, was just difficult, I think, for, you know, the mass population to go, okay, we're all going to do X. You know, mm-hmm. well, it became political right away. Yeah. It's hard enough to get everybody to do that, uh, even if there isn't this argument yep. at the very top, right? Um, you, you heard the lieutenant governor say that he believes that if the vaccine had come sooner, then President Trump would still be president for four more years. Well, that means that the president lost the election, right? The, yeah. I mean, that, that's an acknowledgment of that, that. But he's not going to be president for four more years. Instead, we're going to have Joe Biden. During this same Fox News interview, Patrick was also asked about Attorney General Ken Paxton's lawsuit to overturn election results in other states. Now, the, uh, the Supreme Court dismissed that last Friday on the day that we did the last podcast, and it was just a few hours after we did the show. Um, and it was basically along the reasons that we had talked about during last week's show, which is the Supreme Court is saying that states don't have standing to sue each other. That's not the way it works. Now, Patrick said that the Supreme Court was wrong to refuse to even hear that case, and then he went a little bit further than that. We've not gotten any they court to time. judge this on its merits, and that's, uh, I think that's disturbing well, for many people in America. One of the people in America who was very upset about this was Texas GOP Chairman Alan West. Now, you saw what he said um, late in the day, Friday into Saturday morning was that the Supreme Court uh, was wrong. He agrees with Patrick. He said that, quote, perhaps law-abiding states should bond together and form a union of states that will abide by the Constitution, close quote. Now, when he said that in a written statement, Jeremy, what do you think people immediately thought of? Yeah. Time, uh, is he saying it's going to be Texas seceding? Yeah, seceding, uh, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like that was the first thought, and it's funny. And, and he took it a step further. And, mm-hmm. You know, when we got into you know some of the backlash on Saturday when it started happening, uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, the congressman from New York, had tweeted out uh, about you know this, and he responded oh, yeah. back saying that he wanted to create the uh, Constitutional States of America, the CSA, literally the same exact <laughs> initials of the Confederacy. But he, you know, of course, on Monday things changed. <laughs> yeah, if you go down and look at Confederate monuments, CSA is literally what's written on these statues and monuments about the Confederacy. Um, now, he sort of, kind of, by Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, was trying to walk it back a little bit. Yeah. Here's Chairman West as he explained it on Fox News Channel. That's exactly what we're talking about. When you talk about what is happening here, we need to have states that honor our Constitution. And I know a lot of people are throwing out this secession word. I've never said anything about secession. I talked about law-abiding states. I talked about them forming a union, an alliance, because uh, they're the ones that are abiding by our rule of law. If anyone is out there seceding from the United States of America, it's the states that are violating our rule of law. Chairman West says states like Texas ought to be able to join with other states to shield themselves from the effects of what those other states out there that aren't following the law, in his estimation, that they ought to be able to band together and, uh, you know, and, and fight back against that. But he doesn't really explain exactly what that means. We have a Supreme Court that is supposed to be interpreting the law that says that states like Texas and the others do not have an equal protection under the law, which is part of our 14th Amendment. And these states need to come together and protect themselves against the states that do not follow our rule of law. I think that's a pretty common sense uh, analysis. Why is this specific case that was brought by Paxton to try to overturn election results in other parts of the country, why is this case the one that is a point of no return, so to speak? Well, I think that we have to be concerned if the highest court in the, in the land, which is supposed to interpret the law based upon the Constitution, 
does not even hear a case that is referring back to our Constitution, where the states can show that they are damaging effects upon them because of the illegal and unconstitutional actions of other states. This is very disconcerting. You know, Pete, you and I took an oath to the Constitution of the United States of America and go Army beat Navy. <laughs> but when we sit and we see what is happening, you know, those of us that have served this country in uniform, we have to be very concerned about the path that we're going down. This is a huge uh, fracture in the foundation of our constitutional republic. It's difficult for me to put into words, Jeremy, just how irresponsible this is. We have an election that was run fair and square according to both Democratic and Republican elections administrators all over the country. When yep. the uh, And I'm going to repeat something here that we said on the last show and that we've talked about for a couple of shows now, but it, it bears repeating because I have talked to some people this week who said, that they've never heard what I'm about to say. So obviously not everybody listens to the show. They're not as informed as our listeners. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this one more time. <laughs> um, what gets said in the courtroom, there are certain constraints on that that are not on statements that are made on you know conspiracy websites, Twitter, other uh, lesser podcasts, if you will, radio shows, etc. Um, in a courtroom, if a judge asks an attorney who is an officer of the court – they ask the attorney a question. The attorney not only has to be truthful because, you know, to lie to the judge might mean they would lose the case, but it would also potentially mean they could lose their law license and not be able to do their business and make a living. It would potentially uh, threaten their livelihood. So when this has been talked about on conspiracy websites, they're going on and on about, you know, their signed affidavits that say there are all these ballots that were, you know, illegally harvested and you know, all of these uh, uh, accusations that um, undocumented people voted and dead people voted and all this sort of stuff. But when the president's own lawyers are in a courtroom and a judge says, are you alleging fraud? Rudy Giuliani, who's the chief lawyer for the, you know, for the president, had said, um, this is not a fraud case. <laughs> That's yeah. what he said in court. Um, when another attorney for the Trump campaign was asked if they were alleging fraud, another attorney said no. We're not. Uh, that was, you know, this is basically under oath, right? They, the, the lawyers need to tell the truth to a judge. Uh, do you have any evidence of fraud? Another question from a judge. No, not at this time. That was the answer from the attorneys. And so to continue to whip people up about something that just isn't true, hasn't been shown to have any truth behind it, has real world consequences. This is making some people crazy, right? Yeah, uh, well, and one of the things that was crazy about this is like when you look at the lawsuit that uh, Ken Pax and the Attorney General filed against those states, and even the language from uh, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Allen West as he's mm -hmm. like taking those shots at those states for you know not following the law. You know, the, the thing to remember: the, there's one commonality between Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Wisconsin. They all are Republican legislatures mm -hmm. right now. It's like, so this is fire on other Republicans is what's happening. And this is right. kind of, this is kind of on brand for Alan West. You know, if you look at like what he's <laughs> yeah, he been doing. He took our Republican governor to task yeah, as he, well. He, he goes after Republicans. It, it, the purity test piece of, you know, Republican politics is only ignited more with some of this kind of language that's happening. It's like, yeah, those are Republicans in Pennsylvania, but they're the ones violating the law. It's like. You know, you can see why the, the pushback from Republicans in those states, you know, think the think Georgia is electing yep. Republicans and aren't Republican enough is mm -hmm. kind of astounding. If anybody's yeah. followed American politics for, say, the last 40 years, you know, it's a it's a, a shocking thought that Georgia wouldn't be able to follow the Constitution as well as other states like Texas mm -hmm. is able to do it. Yeah. So this is making people just nuts. Um, there is a case in Houston that got national attention this week. Uh, a former Houston police captain, and listen to this sentence that I'm about to read to you. <laughs> um, and and this will tell you how, how far down the rabbit hole we're going. A former Houston police captain is now criminally charged in Harris County with pointing a gun at an air conditioning repairman because that former police officer is said to have believed that the AC repairman was a mastermind in a voting fraud scheme. Could you keep up with that? Is yeah. it, you, you got it? Okay. Here's the report from CNN. Two weeks before the presidential election, prosecutors say Mark Anthony Aguirre drove an air conditioning repairman off the road and held him at gunpoint. 
the former Houston police captain suspected the repairman was the mastermind of a voter fraud conspiracy. Former Harris County election clerk Chris Holland says it's a dangerous example of when conspiracy theories go too far. Uh, an innocent man, a working man, a family man who was accosted at gunpoint for no reason whatsoever. Uh, it's extremely unfortunate. It's dangerous. Uh, this man deserves to be prosecuted. Prosecutors allege Aguirre and a team of investigators worked for a group called Liberty Center for God and Country. The group tracked the repairman for four days, suspecting the man was carrying 750,000 fraudulent ballots in his work truck. Police say there were no ballots in the truck, just air conditioning repair parts and tools. Jeremy, we had heard uh, some stories from around the country where there was this idea that if there were trucks moving around anywhere close to where a you know a polling place was or or you know where uh, vote counting was going to happen, that it was probably loaded down with ballots for. Joe Biden. Uh, there was a case where food trucks had been said to be used to bring in fraudulent ballots for Joe Biden, and that was the case in uh, Michigan, uh, where we heard from uh, that uh, woman who had uh, been working, uh, you know, in in the voting system. Uh, who sounded maybe a little inebriated when she yeah. uh, talked to lawmakers in uh, in Michigan about it, and Republican lawmakers could not make heads or tails of what she was saying. Um, and so to continue to go down this road of uh, of conspiracy theories about the election, it's over. You heard you heard the lieutenant governor say, and again, that was not where he that was not the the main point he was trying to make. But he is acknowledging that the election's over, and if he takes any issue with that. Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, has said it's over. You know, the, the Electoral College voted this week and McConnell finally came out and congratulated uh, both uh, Biden and his vice presidential uh, pick, uh, Kamala Harris, that they're both going to be president and vice president come January. You heard uh, John Cornyn basically say the same thing. Cornyn had said that, you know, this uh, lawsuit from Paxton didn't add up, didn't make sense, and in fact would create a dangerous precedent for states to be able to sue each other over their various policies. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I, I hope we're coming to the end of this sort, sort of, uh, I hope that the fever is about to break on this, but I'm not sure. Yeah, it's hard to kind of feel where that fever is going to break. You know, it's like, I'm, you know, if you go, you know, one of the most disturbing parts, and one of the things that's fueling this, I think, is the absolute... Um, uh, there, there are a lot of Republicans who are incredulous that so many Latinos and Hispanic voters in this country voted at the numbers they did. You know, how could this be? You know, it's like this shocking mm -hmm. change of demographics and, and these folks actually going through all the hurdles to register to vote. You know, if you if, if people check out the Houston Chronicle story on this whole balloting about harvesting, you know, raid and whatever. There's one portion in there where the the ex, you know, police officer uh, is talking about how, uh, you know, the air conditioner repair guy was running something out of his, you know, his his home where he was having Hispanics, Hispanic kids sign, you know, affidavits, you know, or uh, ballots, you know, to so that they couldn't track them because they'd be kids. The fact that like. The allegation was against Hispanic kids, like, really hits you in the gut. You know, it's just like, why is it that there's so many people having a hard time understanding that, you know, the voters who are Latino are legitimately here. <laughs> they're and legitimately, are legitimately voters, voters. And they signed up, and there's nothing illegal about it. We saw it even with the state, you know, when they went after the, you know, the voter registrations of those people who had become U.S. citizens, oh, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. go back in, you know, the, uh, last year when, you know, we were trying to knock out, you know, voter registrations of, you know, people who with Hispanic last names, you know, because they might have been here illegally. It's yeah. like, what? It's like, why is that the measure? Why are we looking for Latinos for ballot harvesting problems, for, you know, you know, illegal vote counts and things like that? Is this, is there's a consistent trend line in that. And until I think the Republican Party has enough Latino voices in it to say, guys, come on. And it's like, it, it, this is not like a Latino conspiracy. Right. You know, once you drop that, you know, maybe we start seeing people come to their senses and just, hey, it's D versus R. <laughs> That's all it is, you know? Yeah. 
um, the <laughs> that case in, in Houston. We'll, we'll track the uh, the prosecution as it moves forward there. It's going to be fascinating to watch. And you have uh, the involvement of uh, the Liberty Center uh, there, which is uh, run by Steve Hotze, former business partner of Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and Hotze, who has been involved in arch-conservative uh, Republican activism uh, for decades, going yeah. back to the 70s. You know, So this is not a new person. I, I didn't know. I tweeted this out. People can find it on my Twitter feed. I, I did know this. I, I was trying to remember. Uh, Hotze was also the same one who years ago put out some auto-tune songs uh, opposing the Affordable Care Act, which were <laughs> pretty bizarre. He's the same activist who stood on a stage in Houston uh, and pulled a, a sword from a sheath and pointed it at the crowd, pointed the sword and said, we should send the homosexuals back to San Francisco, drive them out of our city. This is the same person paying this pol- former police officer in Houston to find voter fraud. He's saying that the Democrats are trying to steal the election uh, in Harris County. A uh, couple of very interesting issues that could be on the agenda for the legislative session. And I want to talk a little bit about how the legislative session is going to go. The short answer is nobody knows for sure. I'm going to come to the details of that in just a second. But uh, would you rather talk about marijuana? I'll give you the choice, Jeremy. Marijuana in Texas or casinos? Which would you like to talk about first? Let's start with casinos first. All right. So what is the big play here? We know that Sheldon Adelson who is, you know, the owner of Las Vegas Sands Corporation, the Venetian and the Palazzo on the Las Vegas Strip. He also has uh, casinos in uh, China, and he's, you know, one of these uh, giant Republican mega donors. He has not only invested in the reelection of Republican candidates in Texas uh, this year specifically, but he has also hired some pretty big gun lobbyists, uh, people who have what I would call proximity to the governor. He's hired some of these, uh, you know, just the power players in Austin, to try to push for legalized casinos in Texas. Now, we know that maybe they're not going to go that far just yet. Uh, Maybe it might be something pared down as far as sports betting. What are you hearing about this? Well, it's interesting. It's not just them either. If you go through the lobbyist register, like all the other big national gaming companies have sent lobbyists here too. I was kind of going through the list the other day. It's just like, yeah, if you can name the top five casino operators Mm -hmm. in uh, Las Vegas, chances are they have somebody on the ground here in Austin on this hope that Texas is going to go there. So it's clear they're making the case that this is where they want to grow. You know, they see Texas as the ultimate landing spot. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the uh, uh, the meetings we had last week, uh, it was a, a Las Vegas Sands guy who was talking to Tatara, uh, the taxpayer research you know group there in mm-hmm. Austin, yeah. and telling them that boy, the, you know, he started painting a picture of boy, if you had a casino in Galveston, people could hit the beach, go catch a ball game up at the Astros, come back, hit the casinos, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of a destination, you know, resort type thing would bring mm-hmm. in tons of money. So they see Houston as a plum spot. And in yep. fact, that's the language he used to describe mm-hmm. you know Houston when he was talking to the group. Uh, so you can see the desires there. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. You know, we have a governor who has been on record as saying he does not want the expansion mm-hmm. of gaming. He that right. he supports what's in the in the Texas Constitution. Right. The second problem is if you're going to get you know any sort of casino gambling or any sort of expansion of gambling gaming, it has to pass by two thirds majority in mm-hmm. both the House and the Texas Senate. You know, both of them, uh, and then it would go to the voters for. Well, a vote. ex- and we'll explain that too. That that's because the the Constitution right now explicitly says we cannot have that kind of gaming in Texas. Exactly. So you'd have to you'd have to amend the Constitution, which calls Correct. for a two thirds vote of the House and Senate, and then a vote of the people. That's the process, as Jeremy laid it out. Um, and you know, all the polling I've ever seen, uh, I mean, at least for fifteen years on this, I'm just trying to think back. You know, in covering this issue, there were every single legislative session, there are some bills that are filed to legalize casinos in Texas. And it, I'd always just roll my eyes because this is not about to happen. And it, this year, I'm not rolling my eyes because of some of the things we're laying out with some of the players who are involved and, you know, some of the facts uh, that you just laid out uh, as they were presented by the guy from Las Vegas Sands. Um, but, but I do think that the best argument they have is revenue. Uh, we're yeah. going into we're going into a tough budget session. Uh, we know uh, that they're going to have a deficit of some number. The uh, the comptroller in the middle of the year because of the pandemic had said what they expected to be a surplus will now be in the red. 
right, when they get there in yeah. January. So there will be some lawmakers who are looking for money. Um, but the governor says he doesn't want it. So that it, it, and let's say this, it's kind of interesting because of the process. The governor is cut out of the process on a constitutional amendment because if it passes by two thirds, the governor can't veto it because it's already veto proof. Right. So then it goes to the people. So process wise, he's cut out, but that doesn't mean he can't have a voice in the process of telling the lawmakers, I'm not for this. And he just helped a whole lot of the Republican members hold on to their seats, especially in suburban areas, right? He, he's not popular right now in some of these places, but primarily because of his pandemic response. But he may be popular with some of the Republican lawmakers because he backstopped them in their elections, right? So they'll listen to him on issues. I think that's one way to cast that. The other thing is, and this plays into the other uh, issue, which is marijuana, which we'll get to in a second. Um, when people say, oh, they're going to be looking for money, Jeremy. Uh, during that Tatara, you know, the Texas Taxpayers and Research Association uh, event and some other um, you know, conversations I've heard specifically around the Texas budget for the next uh, biennium, uh, they're looking for revenue, looking for revenue. The Ways and Means chairman, uh, Dustin Burroughs from Lubbock, uh, held a discussion earlier in the year where he talked about finding different uh, revenue sources to try to buy down property taxes, I think was the way he framed that up. Looking for new revenue. You know who's not looking for new revenue? Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, yeah. he is the, you know, he's one of the big three. Uh, if the House and Senate don't do something together, then they don't do that thing. Uh, and Patrick has been opposed to finding new revenue in the past. He's a fiscal conservative, proudly so, and he wants to see them cut their way to a balanced budget. I mean, that's the way he's approached it from the very moment he first walked onto the Senate floor back in 2007 when he was first a senator after getting elected in 2006, uh, at the end of the budget process, I remember it was kind of a, a funny exchange. Um, they had gone through the whole process. They were getting ready to vote on the budget. At the very last minute, uh, Patrick put out a press release uh, for all the media, and then he uh, talked about it on the Senate floor, and it, it led to this really heated argument between Patrick and John Whitmire, the dean of the Senate. Um, and Patrick had said, here's a whole bunch of other things we could cut from the budget. You know, we're not being conservative enough and um, you know the the dean of the senate uh, the elder statesman in the senate uh, whitmire just took him to task and he's sort of uh you know flogging this freshman on the floor and by the way in later years uh whitmire had said maybe he wished he didn't do that he didn't imagine he'd be lieutenant governor later and he'd have to work with him in that fashion he said maybe i would have been nicer to you if i'd have known that um sort of in jest but um uh, patrick has made that one of his uh, stamps he wants to put on state government is that he wants to cut his way to a balanced budget, not to find more revenue. Um, we always hear this, Jeremy, that the evangelical right is against casino gambling in Texas. I remember uh, as a kid growing up in Wharton County where they would have the inserts in the church program. It's like, call your lawmaker, tell them that you're against casinos in texas there was some reporting later that some of that uh, literature that had been distributed to churches was actually paid for by the choctaw nation or the um, <laughs> or the uh, chickasaw nation up in oklahoma and uh, it was other gambling operators in other states who were paying for that so that people in texas would be against it i would say you have these different players who want to have uh, gaming in the state like Las Vegas Sands, probably MGM, probably Caesars Entertainment, El Dorado, those big gaming companies that you mentioned. Uh, also Tillman Fertitta, who's a billionaire from Houston. He is the one who's been wanting to have a casino in Galveston, yep. which he owns so much property in Galveston already. I'm sure he could – it would be like one of those movies where they push the button and all the tables turn over and suddenly it's a casino, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? And the, and, but he's – I mean he may have that set up already you know, in one of his – in some of his properties down there. I don't know. I had been told that the convention center down there, they could put a thousand slot machines in that facility like tomorrow if yeah. the if it was suddenly legalized. Um, so I don't know exactly what Tillman Fertitta wants to see. I do know, you know, based on some reporting that Fertitta and the incoming speaker of the House, Dade Phelan, are close or their families are close. And so if I was one of these big operators like Adelson, uh, or bigger, I should say, than, than Fertitta, if I was one of those bigger operators, I'd try to figure out what Fertitta wants and try to maybe, you know, ride on top of that with whatever it is they're trying to do. I think that part of the discussion on this would be whether or not you would have destination casinos that would be, you know, maybe like down in Galveston kind of qualifies. It's not right in Houston, yeah. right? 
um, but then maybe have some that just are situated right across from where casinos are right now that Texans go to, like across the state line from Shreveport, across the state line from uh, the casinos that are in Oklahoma, north of DFW. When if you if you pull into the parking lots in any of those casinos, almost every yep. license plate is a Texas license plate, right? That, that's where Texans go to gamble right now. Texans drive to those places and they fly to Vegas. And when you say that the guy for Vegas Sands wants to see Houston as a plum, that's the way he described it. The casino operators do such a good job of keeping profiles of their customers. That's something that the casino business is known for. So when he says that we see a real opportunity in Houston, he knows exactly how many people go to Vegas from Houston every year. Exactly. Right? He he knows that he knows how many people go from Dallas Fort Worth, how many people go from Austin, San Antonio, etc. And I think in that discussion, didn't he talk about the idea that these uh, casinos should be not only integrated into some of our large cities, but these should also be those two and three billion dollar facilities, like the like the Wynn and the Encore, yep. like Caesar's Palace, like the Bellagio, those style casinos. And not the kind of thing that the Indian tribes or the or the smaller operators like in Lake Charles that they compete with. Well, and and, and you can see that argument almost like hurts him potentially with the you know Texas legislature, right? You know, if there were legislators who were like worried about cash and wanting to get cash to help shore up the budget, what they're talking about with a three billion dollar investment of a you know destination casino would be years away from being done. It's like we're talking years to kind of get a casino up and operating. Uh, that's not a quick fix, you know. It's like, and so when legislators kind of deal mm-hmm. with this issue, it's going to have to be on the pure merits of whether or not they want to expand gaming or not. And here's a w- little wild card to the whole thing. Uh, the Texas you know, Republican Party uh, has a you know, plank in their platform that is against the expansion of gaming. Right. And so that becomes a weapon, too, and how you could use that against another Republican for supporting expanding gaming in a mm-hmm. primary. And as you've pointed out so many times, Texas is still a primary state you know, yeah. for most of these Republicans. And the last thing you want to be you know, doing in some you know, rural part of the area is trying to defend why you vote went against the Republican Party platform mm-hmm. to try to expand gaming, which we already told you we don't want in the yeah. Constitution. Right. right. So a lot, was, of, it, lot of, lot of red markers there. Yeah, absolutely. It's also interesting um, to see the Las Vegas Sands folks come out and be on the record uh, about exactly what their intentions are after there had been a lot of chatter about it as some of those lobbyists were being hired and people were saying, wow, the big guns are being called out on this. Um, just from a business standpoint, and I think from a legacy standpoint, you have to believe that you know, Sheldon Adelson is up in years. He's coming to the end of his career. We'll say it that way. Um, and he's making some big moves uh, in other respects. Uh, he has put his his Las Vegas Strip properties are up for sale. Yeah. He's, ta- he's talked about getting off the Strip really right now, and especially during the pandemic, this has been magnified. A lot of Las Vegas revenue uh, depends on international travel. The people who come in from Ch- – the guys who can come in from China, the billionaires who come in – and they can spend $10 million on blackjack in one night <laughs> and then fly back to China, right? Yes. Um, they're not getting that during the pandemic because there's not international travel. And so the win in uh, the win casino in uh, Macau and the Venetian operation in Macau, that's where those guys are making a ton of their money right now. So they're making money in China and they think, okay, look, we can make money over here in Asia and we can also – maybe move this whole thing forward by finally landing the biggest prize of all in the continental United States, which would be to have casinos in the state of Texas, because not only is it a place where people have a lot of money, but as the evidence shows and as their uh, hotel registries show in Vegas, Texans love to gamble. And every, every uh, poll that I've seen for 15, 20 years has said, if this ever went to the people for a vote, it'd pass no problem. I mean, north of 75% support. Uh, is, is is some of the numbers I've seen. All right, uh, marijuana. We ready for this? Some fe- some people were asking me about it. I always get this question: Are we going to get legalized pot in Texas? Short answer: No. I don't think so. I, I, <laughs> um, I, let me put it this way: You know, I don't make predictions. Jeremy's not in that business. We don't make predictions. But I would be shocked if legal pot became a reality in Texas after this next legislative session. Here's one thing. A lot of these issues like casinos, like pot, like 
any other number of things. So many of them are going to be so on the back burner because everything is triage from yeah. COVID-19, right? I, I probably should have said that before I even started the, the, the casino talk, but we had been talking about COVID-19. Um, triage, triage, triage at the state, federal, and local level. They're trying to, you know, uh, correct the, uh, the problems with the economy. We're trying to get vaccine to everybody, um, all of that sort of thing. And so that puts all of this other stuff six months down the road at least right and by then the legislative session's over yeah. right look, um, know, mm-hmm. look look what covid-19 exposed you know it's like obviously you know beyond just pure healthcare as you look at it like in terms of like all the people who are forced into school into tele you know commuting and telework is like how bad the broadband is in some parts of this you know state it's like that's going to be a big issue, you know, going forward. You know, and then you, you know, healthcare too. You know, it's like that's going to, you know, raise the question: How do we handle, you know, healthcare? It's like I don't, I'm not saying they're going to expand Medicaid. You know, I, I know yeah. a lot of people think we're going to get there at some point, but I don't think this is the year that they're going to do it. Uh, but still, there's going to be a conversation about like how do we help these rural communities that don't have hospitals, you know, to handle this kind of surge that we've been seeing. And so I think I think there's going to be a lot of conversations about. It's just kind of like, you know, what COVID-19 exposed that are uh-huh. holes in our system. Even look at the unemployment you know, benefits. Remember how, like, early on there weren't enough people to even manage the phone calls coming in for people who needed unemployment help? And oh, right. they had to call in, like, you know, They were workers. bringing in staffers. They were bringing yeah. in uh, legislative staffers to come answer the calls. Yeah, and it if was you don't think that's going to be— All a, hands you know, on deck. Yeah, that's going to be a total big problem that the, the legislature is going to have to kind of figure out. Like, if there's another one, or maybe less than if, when there's another pandemic that does something like this, you know, what do we do then? You know, mm-hmm. it's like we can't possibly have the same problems that we did before where people were, you know, literally calling day after day after day and getting a busy signal. You know, who knew there were even busy signals left in American, <laughs> you know, telephones? Right. But. You found it if you try to call unemployment benefits. If you try to call state government, you'll get a busy signal. The director of Texans for Responsible Marijuana Policy is is, uh, Heather Fazio. She was on KTRH in Houston to talk about this. She's not surprised that some very conservative lawmakers now support the idea of at least decriminalization of marijuana. Public opinion has shifted dramatically over the last several years, including the time between last legislative and this coming. We're seeing Democrats and Republicans alike taking a more sensible approach and being willing to have a conversation about this meaningful policy change. She says that the more information people actually have about it, the more they're just cool with it. We've been lied to and misled by our own government propaganda campaign for the last century. And now we know what the facts are. Cannabis safety profile um, is better than any other drug on the market when it comes to medical patients and when it comes to recreational adult use. It just simply isn't as harmful as they've told us. So is there any chance of legalization? Well, for the first time, this legislative session, legalizing adult use, steps 21 and up, would be on the table really for consideration, especially considering the budget shortfall we're facing. Legalizing marijuana could bring in an estimated $1.1 billion in tax revenue per budget cycle. We're looking at an almost $3 billion market and between 20 and 40,000 jobs. Uh, this is something that even the most conservative lawmakers can no longer ignore. Oh, yes, they can. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, you don't know and, us very well, do you? Well, it, it's just, it's, it's what you said, Jeremy. It's that they could possibly face opposition in their primaries over it. Uh, you have a lieutenant governor who, as we pointed out, is not looking for new revenue in all likelihood. Um, if, if she and others can get Dan Patrick to stop ignoring how much money that the state could potentially make off of that, well, then maybe we'll see some difference, but it's not what I anticipate. Well, if they're going to go anywhere, like the one part that they kind of got a little bit close to, at least in conversation in the Texas mm-hmm. Senate, was the medical marijuana piece. You know, that that one, uh, Senator Menendez from San Antonio kind of had mm-hmm. made a, you know, pretty strong push and had gotten some support even from a few you know, Republicans uh, who have background in medical fields who kind of, you know, mm-hmm. see it as a, a good avenue, for, particularly for like, you know, you've he- heard it you know, before where there's some places where the, you know, there are veterans who can, you know, use this to help them with PTSD and some of the other issues that they're facing. Right. But in Texas, they're not able to. 
You know, it's like when it's phrased that way, it became a much closer conversation, you know, in the Texas Senate. So if there's going to be some place where marijuana does become legalized, it's going to be in a medical marijuana thing where a lot of other states already do this that are light years ahead of us on allowing doctors to prescribe this. Right. Um, of course, that another another one of those things that the lieutenant governor has said he is not for. And you remember when. Um, the governor did sign the very limited um, cannabis oil, uh, yeah. the, the use of that for people who have ex- uh, in extreme cases of epilepsy. At that time, Abbott went out of his way when he signed the bill to say, this is not a door that we're opening uh, to legalization of pot. There still is um, serious opposition to that uh, within yep. the Republican Party, even though, um, you know, unlike the casinos, the Republican platform on this has come in the direction of of reforming uh, marijuana. Sure. One of the one of the uh, arguments that seems to work, uh, you know, and, and resonate with conservatives on this. A lot of folks I would talk to at the Republican Party conventions, uh, the last couple of them, um, I would hear from them. They would say, "Look, you know, the, it, we're we're the party of less regulation, and prohibition on something is the ultimate regulation of it." Right. Yep. So there's I, I was telling these um, these folks who were a little more liberal uh, who want to push this. So we're like, why don't we just, you know, tax it, regulate it? I'm like, well, if you're talking to Republicans, that's not what you want to say. You, you want to deregulate it. Right. That That's the kind of yep. argument that works with <laughs> uh, with a conservative activist. Um, how is the session going to operate? This has been a question um, over and over again. And when I've been, you know, been asked about uh, what's going to happen during the session, my first thought is, how are they even going to do it? Um, there have there's been so much talk about it. Uh, the Texas House of Representatives, the administration chairman Charlie Guerin, put out a memo uh, this past week uh, in which he sort of outlined how it should work on the first day of the legislative session, uh, but couldn't go beyond that because the truth is it's going to be up to the members of the legislature how this works. Um, now, this is of course going to be in concert with the governor's office and the incoming speaker of the house and Lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, but for the house and Senate, they write their own rules. They make their own rules. They have, um, what do they got? Plenary authority, right? They get to run their own deal. And the rules that they debate, um, when they first gavel into session in January will dictate how all this works. Um, now the memo, that was put out from House administration talks about people wearing masks and distancing. There'll only be a certain amount of people who are even allowed in the Capitol. That building, Jeremy, I think at max, semi-comfortably, will hold about 6,000 people. Something like that. That's where it tops out. And keep in mind, there's about 1,000 people who work there. Yep. Okay, so you're already saying, okay, we're about 5,000. So if you're doing um, social distancing... Does that take it down to 2,500 people who can be in there um, if they're still having to do this? And, uh, you know, after January, February, March, April, they only get five months for the legislative session. What we have seen come into focus is that the House and Senate seem to want to arrive on that first day, have their pomp and circumstance, uh, you know, maybe have a very limited number of guests there. You know, they usually they it's like the first day of school. Oh, yeah. They bring their, you know, they bring their family and they bring their kids and it's very packed on the House floor with lots of people. They're not going to do that this time. Um, in the memo from House administration, it left open the question about whether members of the media were going to be on the floor, even though I have heard some comments from some Republican leaders that made it sound like the media would not be allowed on the floor, which I would argue is bad for transparency uh, in state government. Um, the lieutenant governor is all signs are that he's deathly afraid of catching COVID-19. I say that because he's had a couple of in-person fundraisers, one in Austin that I know about and one in Dallas, Fort Worth that, uh, I was there in Dallas as it was unfolding and people who were in the room said, Patrick would not go anywhere near anyone at the, at the event in Austin. Uh, they set up like a 12 top dining table, you know, put, pushing two tables together and he's at yeah. w- completely one end of the table and the person greeting him at the fundraiser would have to be at the complete other opposite end of the table. All right. He's doing social distancing at an event in Dallas, uh, with big money folks <clears throat> like Brent Ryan, uh, who runs a big company, uh, Ryan LLC, <clears throat> Doug Deason and some other, some of these other big, uh, donors, Jeremy, he wouldn't get within 25 feet of them. 
Yeah, well, exactly. Right. And I saw similar, similar during the campaign season, you know, when, like, he was out there running stuff for, you know, trying to support, you know, Donald Trump. You know, there was an event that was with him in Houston in which, you know, he was very well social distanced, was all masked up when he came into the room, uh, was taking it very seriously. So I think, you know, it, it's interesting. He's, I think he's taking it pretty you know, darn seriously throughout the whole thing. I haven't seen him as one of the, uh, the, the offenders of, you know, not wearing masks and getting too close to other people. He, he, he's pretty aware of this. He's, he, he clearly knows what he's trying to do. Yeah, very aware of it. And so that means that some of the things we might see uh, is you may have to be tested uh, within 24 hours of, of entry of the, te- <laughs> of the Texas Capitol, um, that you might have to sign up three days in advance to testify on stuff. Yep. Um, it, uh, it, 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 just, it may be something where the public interaction is extremely limited. Media access is extremely limited. But we'll see how it plays out with the with the pandemic. One of the um, or with the with the pandemic and the vaccine. One of the things that could become uh, apparent when we get about two months into this is that you might have the vaccine uh, really starting to take hold, at least with those first folks who get it, such that the lawmakers could basically delay the session for about two months and then get back to work in March. Yeah. Which is not unlike the usual rhythm of a legislative session. That's what I was going to say. It's just like, you know, what I've heard is even if you look at the number of bills that have been filed, there's a lot less of them that have been filed this year than compared to past cycles. And all indications to me sound, you know, seems like, you know, the slow walk we do the first two months of the legislative session is going to be even slower. (laughs) Just try to get, you know, deeper into the spring when the vaccine is, you know, starting to take you know, like, you know, more hold, you know, so to speak. So in trying to get out there more, I think that's when we're going to see the, you know, you know, the, the legislature pick back up in a more serious way. You know, think April is when, you know, they'll really kind of push this all into overdrive. I think the, I think the budget's going to be getting built from day one. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I think it's going to like a lot of the other stuff is going to be a back burner. We've already heard that redistricting. Uh, because the data is so far behind, you know, uh, getting to the state of Texas, we're probably not going to see it during the session. You know, it's like, you know, there'll, there'll be some hearings, but there'll be no maps and no data probably until sometime in the summer when the legislature's already out. So they'll have to do a special session. So that, ex- you know, that's off the table. They don't have to worry about that nearly as much going into this first, you know, few months of, you know, whatever COVID-like legislative right. session we're about right. to have. Yeah, it's going to be a little weird. I've still got the frog in my throat. I've got my cough drop going now. All right, so the kind of year that it has been, what is there to even say about it at this point? I feel like it's kind of all a haze ever since about March when everything started to shut down. And in just surreal fashion, all of a sudden, the things that were going on with life stopped going on. And suddenly you have people telling you you've got to wear a mask, you got to stay home. Uh, work from home if you can. We had so many people out of work and suffering yesterday, and I put the link on this on my Twitter, uh, and I know that you've been doing some, um, you and your daughter, been doing some uh, work at the Central Texas Food Bank, I guess. Yep, that's correct. Uh, you know, I was, I was making a donation there, and it's on my Twitter feed if people want to make a donation. I feel really bad for the folks who are going, you know, through such a tough time right now. I mean, we are pretty lucky as people who can work from home. Not everybody can do that. And we have seen in this year people who have never had to ask for assistance before in their whole life are having to show up for a bag of food, right? Yep. I mean, you talked about on your social media, it was pretty emotional to see that happen. People look devastated that they would have to ask for help, but that's why we're all here is to help each other. Um, but you, when you think about the kind of year that it's been, um, it's easy to just say, well, COVID is the thing, right? That That is, I mean, that's so obvious that I don't need to really say it. Yeah. So, so my so my question would be, other than that, what would you say sort of define the year and the election politically in Texas? Um, what In your mind, what was the, the big takeaway that might be a little under the surface from, from COVID? 
Well, I think it's impossible not to talk about the election and especially down the stretch and the amount of effort that, you know, both the Joe Biden campaign and the Democratic Party put into, you know, South Texas trying to win this area. The thing that's the, the most democratically strong section of, of the state of Texas. They've been voting Democrat for 100 years from right. basically Laredo to Brownsville. But at the same time, there's been a weakness down there that, you know, the Democrats kind of like, you know, knew that they had to do more. You know, I was writing about how this biggest stronghold, you know, for the Democrats may actually be what cost Joe Biden the election. Now, it didn't get to the point where it totally cost him the election, but it certainly was a big impact. You know, it's like he did better than any Democrat uh, in Texas, you know, since Jimmy Carter. Right. Except for along the border, there's some counties along there that hadn't voted Democrat for 100 years mm-hmm. that flipped to vote for Donald Trump. Right. And so there's clearly an issue down there that the Democratic Party needs to be, you know, better understand and better, you know, work on. Now, the Republicans down there just have surged. And I think, you know, going forward, I think it, not just for this year, it, I think it was a big story throughout the year that they couldn't quite figure out. They knew what the problem was, but they couldn't fix it. Uh, but going forward, you know, I think it's going to continue to be an issue. The Republicans mm-hmm. now see an opportunity to grow what they saw uh, in 2020 mm-hmm. uh, and say, hey, maybe there's some more Republican votes down in places like Laredo and Brownsville than we ever imagined. And I think the answer from this November was, yeah, there is. It's like you just hadn't tapped them very well until now. So I think that was a big part of the story. I think it's going to change Texas politics, uh, particularly in South Texas, you know, for some time to come. I wonder, you know, you, you may have a situation where there were a lot of those folks who would vote for Donald Trump, but they would not vote for other Republicans. Um, Possibly. You know, I mean, I mean, the thing about this year and the way the election results came out, as, as I read it, and I was talking to some Republicans who were so mad that President Trump, you know, this, uh, the, the election's been stolen, you know, all the issues we were talking about before. And I said, I don't know why Republicans are so down in the mouth about this. Republicans did pretty well all across the country except for President Trump. And I keep making this case that the Trump thing and the Republican thing are different. Obviously, there's plenty of overlap right now. He's the head of the party as the president. Um, But the appeal of the Republican classic, if you will, like John Cornyn, is different from the appeal of President Trump. And so you have, as you said, Biden, he did better than any Democrat had done in this state since what, since Jimmy Carter? Yeah. But at the same time, Cornyn and other Republicans statewide still beat their opponents by 10 points. Yeah. Right? So the the real um, uh, baseline for Republicans in Texas in both the 2020 election and the 2018 election um, can still be around 10 points, right? Because in 18, you had statewide Republicans other than Greg Abbott come within just, you know, two points of almost losing their races but Abbott beats his opponent by 13 points, yep. right? John Cornyn beats his opponent this year by 10, you know, 10 points. So you're, you're in that 10 to 12, a dozen points range, basically, uh, being, the, being the, the baseline. And so when Democrats would get a little excited about the fact that, hey, you know, we at least made it closer in Texas once again, I don't know that there's another Republican nominee in four years who's going to create the kind of environment where that can happen. Um, where you have so many people who are willing to say, I might vote for Biden, but then I'll vote for other Republicans like John Cornyn down the ballot. So a yeah. lot of Republicans who are just disgusted with President Trump, you know, yep. particularly in the in the Texas suburbs. And then I think what happened down in South Texas, it, it it's almost like the Republicans might be reading too much into it for themselves as far as how they will do in South Texas. Because guess what? They're not President Trump. And we have found over and over again that the response from voters to Trump is very singular to him and doesn't necessarily translate uh, down the ballot. And, and look, you saw Republicans all across the country do pretty well. There are more uh, U.S. House members who are going to be Republicans next year, right? Yep. They're fighting it out. on the, They're on the knife's edge now in Georgia trying to figure out who's going to control the United States Senate. Um, and as I said, other Republican candidates in state legislatures all over the country, they did very well. Democrats did not flip one state house, even though that was a big effort in Texas and other states as well. The thing that really struck me as far as definitive 
for this year and the way the campaigns went. Um, two things. One is man-made and one is not. One is the fact that they got rid of straight ticket voting in Texas, and this was the first election to test that. And it goes to part of what you're talking about with what happened in South Texas, where people were making these choices. You know, maybe go with Trump, but go with Democrats and other, uh, you know, other races, um, and vice versa, where some people were going with Biden, you know, in the Texas suburbs, but then going with, you know, Republicans. Um, and they had an easier time of doing that because they didn't just have the old option of saying, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat, and you just hit that one button and that's all of your votes down the ballot. Couldn't do that anymore. And then the other thing was the, non-man-made thing, but it caused us to all have to make decisions. Republicans made the decision they were going to do traditional campaigning, and Democrats decided that they would not do that, and they would take their campaigns online. They would only do Facebook Live events, digital strategies. They would try to reach voters through um, you know, mail programs and you know, uh, literature drops in their neighborhoods and not go talk to people one-on-one because Democrats thought that in the pandemic, people do not want to be bothered at their homes. They're going to be offended by that. Um, and that was the calculation that they made. And Republicans did the opposite. They said, we're going to go door to door around the state, especially in these competitive districts. And we're going to talk to voters and we're going to make our case. Now, I have heard from some of the academics who say, they'll ask this, Jeremy, they say, what's the evidence? Can you show the evidence for that having any impact on the race? Well, it would be like saying that what the campaigns and the candidates do and say doesn't matter as far as how the election result comes out. Um, the Republican uh, candidates and their workers in their can- in their campaigns were reaching out to voters one-on-one. You know that in presidential races and U.S. Senate races, those sort of field operations, they're important. But in congressional races and Texas House races – those kinds of tactics have outsized influence. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Because that's what they really have the budget to go do, uh, that can be effective. And it's not, and I was talking with a consultant who had a pretty good uh, insight on this. It's not just that the candidates and their volunteers and campaign workers would go talk to voters and make their case to voters about why they should vote for them and differentiate themselves from president Trump, which was the big challenge for Republicans in suburban areas, which they were able to do. But it's also that when you go talk to somebody one-on-one, it's a two-way communication, right? That you hear from voters what their concerns are, and then you can tailor your message to the district as you continue to talk to those people who are persuadable. And then you would also learn things at the door. So, for example, a candidate maybe goes to a house or a campaign worker goes to a house. They've identified this uh, house as a home of swing voters. And both campaigns would have identified that home as a swing voting house, right? Um, Well, the uh, campaign worker might talk to the voter and the voter says, hey, I just got the uh, mail piece that's attacking your candidate. Have you seen it? And the person says, no, I haven't seen it. And the the campaign worker would take a picture of it and send it back to uh, campaign headquarters. And that might be the first time that the campaign learns about that particular attack from the other side. And then they have to figure out well, do we need to answer this? Do we need to calibrate our message or do we just ignore this one? But the fact that it's a two-way communication is extremely important. When Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was first running uh, as a senatorial candidate, SD7 in Northwest Harris County, I've told this story before, but I'll say it again. It's one of the reasons, and maybe the reason he's the best politician in Texas. He's a very good talker, and we all know him to sort of be a motor mouth, and he can, you know, make his case about different things. He's on Fox News Channel, and he's a former radio talk show host and all of that. I would say that his real skill is listening. Dan Patrick did this listening tour when he was running for Senate, just talking to voters, and especially the most active conservative uh, people in the district that he was running for, a lot of the precinct chairs who are Republicans in that area. He would just sit with them for an hour at a time and just listen to them about what their concerns were and what uh, state government need, needed to be doing and all of that. And when the when the meeting was over, he would just slide them his personal business card with his cell phone number on it and say, anytime you need anything, you call me. And of course, that person would not, would not only love the fact that he listened to them, but that they were going to tell three friends yep. right, that they need to vote for this guy because he's the real deal. Well, not only would he get that benefit out of it, that they loved, you know, that he would listen to them. But by listening to them, he also learned the things he needed to say on the campaign trail to get their votes. 
and to get the votes of those sorts of activists, right? Um, and so that, that kind of communication and talking with voters, uh, and not that you can't do a version of it virtually, but it's just not the same as doing it in person. It was mind-blowing to a lot of folks that Democrats completely abandoned the field on that. And there were a lot of Democrats after the election who said, we should have been doing that all along, especially when, Jeremy, they knew by the middle of the summer, the science said that there were ways that you could do that safely. Yeah. Right. That well, you could keep your distance, wear a mask, and it wasn't going to be the case that every single person was either going to be offended that you were there or that they would be you know, ecstatic that you were there. There were a lot of people who were trying to figure out how they were going to handle this. And the main uh, thing that I took away from Republican campaigns and covering it was they were trying to be respectful. You know, yeah. if it seemed that people didn't want to have that interaction, they would move along. Yeah. And but if it seemed that they did want to have the interaction, they'd stand there and talk to them. Well, and, and look at like you know, 2018 is a great example for Democrats. You know, you know, why was Beto O'Rourke the most successful Democratic candidate in 25 years? It's kind of what you're saying. It's like you know, he was going to all these different places, meeting with people face to face, and taking a billion selfies with people, right? And those people would then send those selfies out, which would then you know, you know become almost like a calling card to others. You know, so it became this you know crazy network of you know excitement eating excitement. You know, and it just compounded pounded on each other. None of that could happen this year f with the way the Democrats ran their strategy. It's not like, you know, by not having an ability to go out there and to meet voters one-on-one, -on -one, you know, it's like, you know, there was one point where, like, I, I remember uh, he, he was up in Anderson Mill, Better O'Rourke, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, he, he was just packed, you know, on the back of a pickup truck, and there's like, you know, it felt like a couple thousand people right. just gathered around from the neighborhood and are, were watching him speak on, hey, who is this guy? You know, it's like all of that was gone in this cycle. You know, any chance to be, you know, Beto 2.0 never existed in 2020 mm -hmm. because of COVID and because of the decisions the Democrats, you know, ultimately ended up making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And look, they'll argue that it's the decision that they needed to make. They want people yeah. to be safe. And I understand that. Uh, but when I saw Beto O'Rourke say uh, that he wondered what the possibilities would have been if they could have gone out and done the kind of events you're talking about or to go around and block walk, it, it's a choice that they made. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, it is a choice that they made. And I saw where Texas Monthly Magazine said that the Texas Democrats are the bum steer of the year. I, I'm way past just piling on Texas Democrats because, you know, guess what? Banner headline, Republicans won in Texas again. But I do think that it, it, it means there will be some soul searching about what went on in this, uh, in this election. Um, and as, as someone wiser than me once said, um, you could learn everything that you could possibly learn. Spend all your time learning as much as you can from this election and just immediately forget it after that because yeah. we'll never have another one just like it. Exactly. And, and hopefully we'll never, ever have another year like this one, Jeremy. Yep. I want to say to the listeners, since this is our last show before Christmas and New Year's, and we'll, we'll meet up with you again in January, everybody, I want to say thank you to the listeners for putting up with us low these many months, um, for turning to us each week to help think through these issues with us because I feel that's the way we approach the show is to just present the facts and kind of think it through together. Um, it, I, one of the things that has been interesting to me during the pandemic, and, and it, it gives me a little bit of hope, Jeremy, is that even when folks felt like they couldn't physically be together, people still need to gather up. We're still social creatures, right? And, and some yep. of the ways people do that are through different communities. And, and a podcast can be that. You know, your Facebook can be that, your Twitter can be that, um, you know, people have been doing these Zoom happy hours. They're, they're still doing, some people are still doing that stuff, you know, they're just getting together virtually. And this has been our version of doing that with you. We've seen our audience grow during the pandemic because I know people want to just get the facts. They want to know what the news is. They want to know, you know, kind of uh, some context about what's happening so they can understand it. And it means a lot to me that people would trust us every week to go through that process. And so uh, there is no podcast without the listener. So we love you. We're glad you're there. And we'll see you in January. If you love the show as much as I am saying that you do, then I don't know how you're not a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you get your podcasts, you got to sign up. Jeremy's work appears at HoustonChronicle.com where you should be a subscriber. And we would love if you would do the same at QuorumReport.com. Uh, just kick, uh, click subscriptions there uh, on QuorumReport.com on the homepage. Click subscriptions. We'll get you signed up. And we will see you in the new year. Mm -hmm.